Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Steve Baker, Tory MP for Wickham in Buckinghamshire and former Brexit Minister. Since entering the Commons in 2010, Baker's developed a reputation as a formidable campaigner, someone who can organise and marshal fellow parliamentarians to pressure governments into action. As chair of the European Research Group of Backbench MPs, he played a crucial role in ensuring Brexit legislation was passed by the House of Commons. Baker's more recently turned his attention to campaigning for ministers to take what he calls a more realistic approach to the net zero agenda, particularly in light of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Steve, great to see you here on Money Talks. How big an issue on the Conservative backbenches now among your constituents is the UK's cost of living crisis. It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue for every MP, I think, and it's a huge issue for my constituents. I'm sorry to say the food bank in Wickham has become something of an industrial operation. And, you know, that is shaming on the whole welfare state, not just this government. And, um, you know, we need to look after people. The official data shows CPI inflation, the consumer price index, was 5.5% in January. Do you think that's accurate? Has the cost of living gone up by 5.5% for your constituents over the last year or by more? I wouldn't be at all surprised if for some people it's gone up by more. I think that the way we measure inflation and the way we try and control interest rates to, to control, control inflation um, is deeply flawed. I think people will have different experiences of price rises and different abilities to bear those price rises. So particularly, say, the energy price rise that will come. For some people, that energy price rise will be a, a huge hit to them. The wealthy, wealthier people probably absorb it. They might not like it, but they'll absorb it very easily. I'm not expecting to struggle to eat my home, for example, on MPs' wages, but many of my constituents will. And for a lot of lower income, vulnerable households, their spending on heating, on fuel, on food is a huge share of their income. So when those essentials go up, their inflation rate they face, the cost of living rise, is disproportionately high. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that we should therefore be asking the Bank of England to look at how inflation affects different groups quite differently, you know, in terms of, in a sense, the basket of goods that really matters to people every day in ordinary life. You know, the cost of housing, for example, we've ended up looking at owner-occupiers' housing costs. But the truth is people want to buy a house. So, and the pricing, prices of houses has been soaring. People want a pension. Well, that means stock market assets. You know, we should be looking at how a, a much broader basket of goods soars when inflation is created through money creation. And um, we should be looking at how price rises affect different income, uh, income groups. Now, the Bank of England is nominally independent, but the governor is an official paid from the public purse. You are an MP. You're fully entitled to comment. Is he doing a good job? I have deep-seated problems with the way that the monetary system works. I agree, in a, in a nutshell, with Walter Badgeop, the original person who wrote a manual on how to uh, run a central bank, and he thought there should be no central banks, but he also thought we were stuck with them, and I agree with him. So I think the problem we've got right now is so huge, it's difficult to compress into a few words. We have ended up with a state spending so much money, it can only do it through the coronavirus crisis. It's only been able to do it because the Bank of England was willing to buy all the bonds, all the government debt that was issued to cope with coronavirus. 
That's according to the government's own office for budget responsibility. But the implications of that are profound. So the government built a bridge through this crisis, but it didn't do it by borrowing from savers. It did it by borrowing from a bond market where traders knew they could sell those bonds to the Bank of England. What would have happened... And the Bank of England bought those bonds using newly new money. created money. New money. Not oh. printing actual notes, but newly created balances by a computer to buy those bonds. Made up money. Yeah. And that this is an extraordinary phenomenon. In a sense, what it's done is make much clearer what's been happening for years. So between 97 and 2010, to pick some years at random, the money supply tripled. Great big accelerating rush to destruction. Well, the implications of having a monetary system like this, where credit is expanded into, for example, mortgages, and the money supply triples, and then you have a massive crisis in the mortgage market, and financial institutions and the instruments based on mortgages, and then you replace that credit expansion, new money created through lending, with money created through QE. Quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, that is direct money creation in, in, in reserves uh, by the Bank of England. We've got to start asking some really profound questions about what that means for what I would call social justice. Because I believe in free markets, but free markets are only free and fair and, and serving society if they operate within certain bounds of just institutions and social processes. And one of those things is your money should mean something. You do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And yet, while you're doing that, somebody else is getting... Uh, billions of pounds uh, of new money printed to buy bonds. It's, uh, it's bound to have an effect on the justice of social processes and people's faith in a market economy, in a nutshell, when they're trying to buy a house and the price of that house has soared away. You and I have talked a lot over the years about these distributional effects of QE, the massive rise in inequality, as you describe, because asset prices have gone up so high, the most visible asset price being uh, the price of a house. So ordinary men and women with regular jobs, hardworking people can't buy houses the way that their parents could. You'll know that the House of Lords did a report into quantitative easing, a very distinguished group of economists, some of Britain's leading economists in the upper house. They called it a dangerous addiction with a question mark. And the Bank of England governor dismissed that report. The, the, there's a very cursory response from the Bank of England and from the Treasury. And the governor focused on the fact that they'd used the word addiction and that might trigger some worried drug addicts. What did you think of that response? It was a cursory and inadequate response to a very good report. But why? Well, because we're skating on thin ice with, I think, very hot water underneath. And I don't take any pleasure in saying that. We've ended up with, as Andy Haldane, former chief economist of the Bank of England, put it, the biggest bond market bubble in history. What does that mean? It means we've got a problem with the way that government raises its debt and the prices of bonds have been bid up by the way that we've, um, the government's operated the, the financial markets. So now we're in a position where if inflation comes in and stays in, under its current mandate, the Bank of England will have to raise interest rates and taper money creation. That could burst that bond market bubble. And that's my biggest fear right now. Because if they burst that bond market bubble, what's Boris going to do? Is he going to massively slash spending, which of course would be very painful for a lot of people? Or is he going to change the mandate of the Bank of England so that they can keep money creation going while inflation is accelerating, which would also be extremely bad for a lot of people? But at the moment, I, I still, I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me I'm wrong about all this and that inflation is really going to be transitory, that it's going to drop back to 2% and that this is all going to be OK. In an environment where we've had so much cheap credit for so long, followed by direct money creation, 
and by all the central banks, by the way, I, I think we're now on thin ice over hot water, and we, we better start getting the central banks, forcing the central banks, to take seriously the issues you've been raising before we have a really serious problem and don't know what to do. I think there's a lot in what you say, as you kindly remarked there. I did give evidence to that Lord's House of Lords uh, in investigation into quantitative easing. We now have a heady brew of very, very overly inflated asset prices for stocks, for bonds. If that bubble collapses, it's going to be front page news for weeks and weeks and weeks, something similar to 2008. Without wishing to be alarmist, that's the situation we're in. It's astonishing to me that more people aren't talking about it. But at least, Steve, people are now starting to talk about the cost of living, something else you've talked about for many, many months as inflation cranks up. We're facing a cost of living triple whammy in April, aren't we? With that rise in fuel bills, the off-gen price cap going up by 54% for the average household, um, with the rise in national insurance contributions and with inflation hitting 7% on the Bank of England's forecast, probably even more. Surely before that moment happens, because it is the month before crucial local elections in May, the government is going to have to take some kind of action, further action, to temper the impact on ordinary households of that cost of living triple whammy. You would think that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister would want to U-turn to avoid that triple whammy. You would think that they would want to abandon the national insurance hike, that they would want to take the green levies off energy bills at least, and that they would want to start thinking very hard about inflation and the monetary system. You would think that they would want to U-turn. And you got a pretty well-deserved reputation, if I may say so, for, shall we say, focusing the minds of Conservative cabinet ministers, both from within government and also from the backbenches. Are you guys on the backbenches putting serious pressure on Downing Street? They seem to have a tin ear on what's going to happen in April. They don't seem to understand that politics is going to get really nasty when this triple whammy hits. We should all be here to serve the public. You know, foremost in my mind is the condition of the people of Wickham and then the, the condition of the people right across the country. So I don't think they have quite yet realised what it will feel like to be a politician when these things hit. I think that there is a dispute going on between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. I think Rishi, the Chancellor, is much more fiscally conservative. That is, he wants to balance the books. Uh, that compared to Boris, who's quite happy uh, with spending and not too worried about covering it with tax. So I think that, that dispute is going to crystallise and be a problem politically for the two of them. You are, if I may say so, fiscally conservative. I suspect you see that as a badge of honour that you're fiscally conservative, but you're also quite a seasoned politician and you come from a very ordinary background, if I may say so. Do you think the Chancellor is showing his lack of experience by wanting to pursue a kind of middle senior common room view of the economy rather than understanding that there is a really serious problem here coming down the track for millions of households. The Chancellor is a man with a great deal of business experience and he really understands the financial system and, and, and economics. Um, but I definitely don't want to get into class conflict with the Chancellor, though I, my father's, uh, he's, thank goodness, still around, but he's a lifelong carpenter. So yes, as you say, a normal background. I do think every Tory MP needs to remember what the condition of people is normally like. In Wickham, the median pay uh, of my constituents is about £35,000 a year. 
well, on, on MPs' pay, that's rather a lot more. And so I respect that I am better off than my constituents. But, you know, I, I hear time and again from MPs that, you know, we're not paid that much. Well, every single MP should be looking at their constituents and thinking, how does it feel to be on less than half the income when these things bite? I mean, one thing that MPs have forgotten is I, I rather think that the, the main cost in every working person's life is actually government. We talk a lot about energy and housing, but the main cost in everybody's life, I think, is government. The I mean, state now is as big as it's been since Clement Attlee taxes in the slight... late 1940s. And that's without starting to really get into what the, the so-called uh, liabilities of the state, the, the things like pensions, uncovered pensions, unfunded pensions. But think about when you go and fuel your car. Last time I checked, the Taxpayers Alliance did a campaign. I think it was 60% of what we pay at the pump is tax between VAT and duty. I mean, if people really realise that when they go to the pumps, they're paying tax, not fueling their car. I mean, these are extraordinary things. So the reason I'm fiscally conservative is because I think it's fundamentally a matter of justice and integrity in politics. What I think we've been doing for 50 years, the whole of my life, this is something Alan Greenspan wrote about. Former Federal, former Reserve, Federal Chair. Reserve Chairman. I mean, I've mentioned him because he's as mainstream a figure as mm. people could have. But he wrote in the 60s that what happens is that politicians make promises they can't honestly fund through tax... So they borrow and they borrow, and in the end, they, they end up debasing the currency, inflating away, trying to inflate away debts, much harder these days, but trying to inflate away those debts for the, so they can cope with their dishonest promises over the long run. But ordinary working people wouldn't live like this and wouldn't put up with it if they knew, right? But this is what happens to get elected, election after election, dishonest politicians of all colours make promises they can't honestly keep out of taxation, which can't honestly be kept, given the demographics of the country, and hope that it will be somebody else's problem when it comes home to roost. Would you scrap VAT on fuel? We can do that now that we're outside the European Union. Would you scrap the system whereby 25% roughly of what people pay for their electricity bills, spiralling electricity bills, goes to landowners, big energy conglomerates and other interests involved in producing and researching renewable energy? I would certainly scrap green levies on energy bills, move it straight onto the, onto the taxpayer and make it the Treasury's problem to confront the cost of those, those green subsidies. On VAT, I would love to cut VAT. It is a regressive tax that hits normal, ordinary people on modest wages. I don't like to say normal people run ordinary people. But I'd love to see VAT cut overall. I mean, it was awful when we put VAT up to 20%. It's extraordinary. You go to buy ordinary goods, and the government's adding 20% to their price. It's extraordinary, but we've become like frogs. We've been boiled into it, that this is a thing we accept. But the idea of chopping VAT, one of the three biggest taxes, well, it would imply some very harsh cuts to public spending. And when we say that, of course, people, they don't look at the pie chart in the big red book. But public spending, we're talking about healthcare and pensions. And education, things like defence are actually quite small proportions of overall spending. So what I'm trying to do in being, I hope, brutally honest about these things is stimulate a serious conversation about politics and choices that we make. Because I think everyday British people, working people, want honest politics and honest politicians. And I say that because I grew up with normal people who fitted gas boilers and put roofs on houses and worked. my stepfather was an open-cast mine worker. And they don't want to be governed by people who lie to them systematically and for the long term about how public services are going to be funded. 
Do you think the Prime Minister is too beholden to the net zero agenda? Do you think he needs to retreat from the chest beating and tub thumping of COP26? Do you think he needs to get real in terms of the costs of transitioning away from fossil fuels? However good the transition may be in principle, maybe slow it down, maybe put the burden less so on the shoulders of ordinary men and women via their spiralling fuel bills. Yeah, Boris Johnson certainly needs to get real about net zero. And getting real means having policy which is socially, economically and politically viable. So requiring people to go over to heat pumps, which are just way too expensive and not suitable for many properties, not a good idea. Banning gas boilers, banning uh, petrol and diesel engine cars when they plan to. We've got to get serious about it. And if we're going to go for a major electrification of our country, we're going to need a great deal more nuclear power, which actually the government is making inroads on. We also need a new generation of gas-fired power stations. We could move towards what's called closed-cycle gas so that we captured the emissions, but we need to go for gas. We are sitting on a gold mine in this country and the of gas, shale gas, and the reason we're not going for it is, frankly, propaganda about fracking. You know, I grew up in Cornwall where... It, there was hard rock mining for, for tin. I've watched Paul Dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably look like one of the characters. But, you know, hard rock mining, major explosions required to get, to, to get the, the tin out. Whereas I listened to a seismologist in Parliament tell us that a normal frack is like dropping a carton of orange juice from waist height. I actually stopped her presentation to ask her to repeat it. Somebody else I've heard say, like uh, dropping a bag of shopping or like sitting down hard in a chair. This is a nonsense. To be leaving that gold mine in the ground where we could be energy secure. People talk about the global gas price. They've only got to go and look at how US gas prices yeah. compare to European to see that there is a regional pricing system going That's on right. with gas. You can also, of course... As US you would, wholesale gas prices much lower than here in the UK. Because they fracked. They've gone for shale. Gas prices on the continent of Europe wholesale lower than here in the UK because they've got more gas storage than we have. Have we? You've worked at the top of government, Steve. You've been knocking around politics and power quite a long time now. How do we get into a situation where this country is struggling for any kind of decent gas storage? How do we get to a situation where back in the 60s we had more civilian nuclear power than the whole of the rest of Europe put together? And now our nuclear capability is dwindling. I'm afraid we get into consensus which outlives ministers and ministers not really gripping their brief and governing the country. I mean, it's an awful thing to say, but one of my staff said to me after some debacle, it doesn't matter what it was, God, is this really how we're governed? And I said, yeah, yeah, it really is. But what we need is ministers who grip their brief, know what they want, and insist upon it to, to officials. I loved the officials I worked with, really respected them. Great people. And you know what I discovered? If you knew as a minister what you wanted, and you might sometimes have to argue with officials to get it, but in the end, if you decided and instructed them, they would do what they were told, mm. with one major exception, which we could get into over Brexit, but by the by. <laughs> but as, as a rule, officials will take a, an instruction from the minister because they understand the minister decides. But what I think has happened on energy policy is we've ended up with a, almost a global just consensus about what we needed to do. I think within the EU, what they were planning to do was have loads of renewables. And then when the wind doesn't blow in the UK, use the interconnectors to use French nuclear to cover the gap. But, well, that's all very well. And I'm glad we've still, we've got a deal and we can use those interconnectors across the channel. But actually, we need to do better than that. Because sometimes, as we discovered last year, sometimes the wind isn't blowing across all of Europe. And we just therefore need to accept that it's gas that covers 
the gap between nuclear and renewables. It's gas that is alone the final arbiter of our energy security. So that's why I say, let's go for the gold mine under our feet. Let's go for shale gas. That will bring in loads of tax revenue for, for the Chancellor. That will secure uh, energy supplies for the public and bring down prices, as we saw in the US. And lots of jobs in the Red Wall. Lots of jobs. We keep hearing about there's going to be lots of green jobs. Only yesterday I read a report which showed there have, hasn't been a big growth in green jobs over the last decade or so. I mean, where are these jobs finally going to start appearing? I mean, how, where do solar panels come from? We keep hearing it's Xinjiang and it's slave labour. I mean, a lot of people claim the moral high ground in this area. And they need to really start asking themselves whether they're truly on the moral high ground and standing up for justice and fairness. When they're forcing ordinary people to choose between heating and eating. And that they are doing. We're going to hear a lot over the coming year from the Labour Party. And the Labour Party, I'm sure, will demand in order to deal with fuel poverty that we, you know, increase benefits or, or, or whatever. But people don't, people want dignity. Working people want the dignity of earning their own way. They don't want the, the state giving them handouts. But the idea that from where we are, we can afford to raise taxes in order to further bail people out from energy costs, which are high because of government decisions, which have rolled forward from one government to the next. It's madness. You know, today I took a briefing on what's gone wrong in energy markets while we've had now 50 energy suppliers fail. It's not because of free markets. It's because of just catastrophically failed regulation. It was only by taking a briefing today that I realised just, just how bad it is. But in one case, a company had £100 of capital in the firm, you know, the amount of money you put in to start a company, and was able to create a business with a turnover of about £800 million, and then went bust because they weren't, they'd lowered their costs by not hedging against future price rises. Yeah. I know all this stuff's a bit complicated, but I'm afraid the energy market is very complicated. And it's very, very highly regulated. They hadn't bought forward at a higher price when energy prices were low because they wanted more profits now. Right. They could have locked in a price that they looked high at the time, totally. but now looks very low compared to where we are now so, yeah. in order to maintain stability yeah. and so their company survived. That's it. So while they could have locked in that low price, what they found is they didn't, so they had to pay the high price when it came. Meanwhile, big reliable suppliers who've been charging people a bit more have ended up that they did lock in a price, and so they were able to survive. But then what happens is, because customers are switched to these other firms that go bust, when they go bust, the cost of covering, clearing up afterwards, keep it simple, the cost of clearing up those, the, those customers' accounts with those bust firms gets socialised, mutualised, they call it, across all the other surviving firms. And that means that if, you, if you're a customer who's staying with a sensible firm, you end up picking up the tab for customers who've switched to a fly-by-night firm that goes bust. Two questions to end, Steve. Do you think the moratorium on fracking is going to be lifted? We're talking three days into the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis escalation. Wholesale gas prices have gone up three days in a row. They've gone up 6% today here in the UK alone. Will this focus on wholesale energy costs mean that Boris Johnson relents and we do start fracking. I don't think the ban will end soon and more is the pity. Because the sooner he ends it, the sooner we can get material quantities of gas out of the ground. And all these things take time. So if we want good quantities of gas, not this winter, but next, the winter after next, the winter of 23 into 24, they need to change the regime now. And only by doing that will we actually help normal people on normal wages afford their gas. You're famously, formidably connected across the Tory backbenches. You campaign 
across the Tory backbenches to, shall we say, maximise the leverage that you can exert on your government. How much anger is there across those Tory backbenches about the net zero agenda? And Steve Baker, have you got a net zero WhatsApp group? I have got a net zero WhatsApp group. Yes, I have. And it's the group of all the groups I've started. It's the one that grew fastest, amazingly. Grew faster than the Brexit group, grew faster than the COVID recovery group. It was amazing. The interest amongst MPs exploded into it, but they're not yet willing to be visible. But I bet they will be once their constituents start suffering the cost of net zero. Steve Baker, great to talk to you. You too. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.